Welcome back to the Shema Podcast. I appreciate all of you joining me once again today. There's something I want to talk about with all of you. You know, I sort of have two parts to my audience, those that were more secular, more living life, maybe as a non-affiliated Jew, Reformed Jew, conservative Jew, whatever you may want to call it, and those that were brought up from, from birth, meaning brought up in a religious community from day one. And for those of you who are on the side of the aisle that are more from those identification with Jewish denominations, I want to tell you where, where I came from. When I had no Jewish identification, and the reason I drew that conclusion is that I found no evidence for this whole idea and tour about this exodus from Egypt and this revelation of Mount Sinai, and it was all made up, then there really is no such thing as the Jewish people. And that's the where I went with my life as I grew older. Now, something happened when I got married. I intentionally wanted to marry someone who was a fellow atheist, who had conviction behind it. So I did not want a Jew because I, I didn't trust Jewish women. I knew that in the end they would have kids and then they would all of a sudden be trying to drag me to synagogue. So I intentionally found a woman who was not religious, not Jewish, had all the other qualities I wanted. And I said, beautiful, we got married, but then something happened. Shortly after we were married, she starts telling me that she has been researching Judaism for years now. And she started asking me questions. And I was like, where did this all come from? This was not in the prospectus at all. And she said, well, I, I'm very interested. I think you should learn more about your heritage. So she signed us up for a basic Judaism class at a reform synagogue. So we go to this class and I'm like, the whole thing is surreal. So I'm like, how did I get here? You know, I, I went through all this calculations to not be here right now. But what happened in that class was that this reform rabbi said at one point that we don't believe that these events actually took place. There's truth in the Torah. There's wisdom, but factually, it's not true. And I heard that and I looked around and I was so ecstatic and I was like, one to yell out, he just confessed. He just confessed what I already knew. We can all go home now, guys. But everyone was just still paying attention, listening, taking notes. And I could not get over this. And when the class was over, my wife wanted to convert. And the rabbi came to me and asked me about becoming a member. And I just was baffled by the whole thing. Like, you just confessed. It was all made up. Why would I sign up and be a part of this? It made no sense to me. But my wife wanted to convert, so I supported her. Now, of course, what has happened since then is eventually I got to that point, as I mentioned to you before, where I realized there is tremendous amount of evidence, overwhelming evidence that everything in there is true. And that's what set me on this trajectory where in a six-month time frame, I went from not even identifying as a Jew to wanting to be a quote-unquote Orthodox Jew. I've been on this trek ever since for the last 10 years, finally moving into an Aruv and a Jewish community last August. And now my wife is going through a conversion, which a lot of my family are perplexed by. I thought she already converted Dan. But you have to remember what that rabbi said was nothing in the Torah was true. And so what did she sign up for? The very first mitzvah is I'm Lord your God, I took you out of the land of Egypt. And he said that didn't actually happen. So as we sit back and contemplate it, we don't know what she signed up for, but it wasn't going through a conversion, having your soul intertwined with that of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and becoming part of the Jewish people. The conversions like that, the only thing they're about is joining a community of people as determined by a committee of men. That is it. Because they don't actually acknowledge 
when an individual takes on the same commitment as the Jews did at Mount Sinai, that they change their status in the heavens and therefore have a greater level of responsibility as a result. Since they don't believe any of that took place, they think it's just a decision that group people can get together and decide. They can change their mind on what the criteria are and different groups can decide on different things. And that is, of course, a rational conclusion if you don't believe anything in the Torah actually is true. But Judaism is not a country club. And if it is just a country club that we join and be a part of, is it really something that we want to be a part of? Especially when there are no really great golf courses as part of these communities. Now compare and contrast that to a conversion that involves a best in. A group of rabbis that know exactly what is taking place when they sign off on their conversion. They know what is happening. They know that when someone goes through a conversion, that they have to first know what is the commitment. What, were, what was the tour given at Mount Sinai so they can fulfill it? Because they know that if they convert someone and they don't know how to behave as a Jew and they don't do things right and they sin, that that falls back on them. And they are quite fearful of that because they recognize the gravity and the truth behind it. And that is a significant difference. And the, the amazing experience for me is that the rabbis in the best din are hardest on me. And the reason is, is because they're saying, you have to be the rabbi to your family. And, you know, Judaism is not a religion. It's a job. And you have to know how to do the job. You have to know how to do the lock You have to know how to be able to help your family through all of this. And it's been an amazing experience to be with people that take it that seriously because they know exactly what they're doing. But it still perplexes me to this day. And this is why I want to talk to you guys. So many of the Jewish people, so many of us think that, for one, we believe in this idea of Jewish denominations. Now, I want you to think back and logic through what that means when someone tells you there is such thing as a Jewish denomination. There's nowhere in the Torah where God says, I am now creating the Orthodox Jew and the Reformed Jew and the Conservative Jew. We know that's not the case. It's one Torah, one set of laws that we all follow. So what is the origin of Jewish denominations? It is the fact, as that rabbi said, another reform rabbi spoke to, is that it was created by men. The origins of the Jewish people were a bunch of men, and let's call a spade a spade. They were liars because they wrote up all these crazy stories and perpetuated them throughout the generations. So now we find ourselves attaching to the origins of the Jewish people that made it all up. And so I'm still perplexed when the confession is made that we still go along with the pattern and, and follow along with it. And I, and I think I know the answer. You've heard me mention to you in the past that there are logical proofs for it. Whenever I found I start to get in that conversation with a Jew, they dig their heels in the ground and argue back. And the reason is, is because they know what happened to me. I had to change my life dramatically once I realized it was true. So I always say, look, you have to take the first step. It's neatly laid out now. Rabbi Yoko Fulby has the Torah 101 podcast that goes through everything very methodically. So just go there. But then what I've tried to do through this podcast over this last year is say, look, I'm going through this process that seems like it would be totally discombobulating to you. And, and that's one of the reasons you, you may not want to go explore the logical proofs because you'll know you'll be stuck in a situation where you have to start doing it. And it seems like that's 
overwhelming. So I tried to chronicle my learning along with you. And then when it came to the point where I was ready to move into a Jewish community, I wanted to say to you all, look, I'm going in first. I'm going to go check it out. I'll report back to you on what it's like. And I want to share one of those experiences with you. And I've shared several of them. And and this is the time for my friend from birth audience to listen back in because to really appreciate and know what you have, you have to know what it's like not to have it. How do I know that's the way to know something? Because that's the entire reason God created the world. How can a created being know me when I'm infinite and eternal? And that is by putting them in a place with free will where I conceal myself and they can begin to carve away what is not me to understand who I am to some degree as, as much as we can. So the experience I had last Sunday, I have this quite often. I went to shul to stay with Rabbi Abrahams and I'm in there. It's a Sunday and I see Rabbi Nagel teaching online a Yomi class, which is a daily study of Talmud. But he is surrounded by these young boys from probably age eight to 15, choosing on their Sunday to sit and listen to a rabbi teach Talmud. And I want you to contrast that now to what I experienced growing up. And many of you probably have many experiences like this. But my childhood was really defined by several things. One, my dad was an engineer, so we lived in one place for a year and then we would move again. So my childhood was defined by getting in fights with bullies. Like at the beginning of the school year, my dad would say, do you know who the bully is? I would say, yes. And he's like, so you know what to do. Because they would, my grandfather and him would train me on the tactics of dealing with the bully, which was a system of putting yourself around the bully, acting very meek, allowing them to tease you and take it and just act meek. And then they would push you a little bit and you act meek. And then when they're not suspecting it at all, when they're so comfortable, they can mock you and make fun of you, look big in front of their friends, then just lay into them. And even if you don't win... They won't want to mess with you the rest of the year because it's too much trouble. And that was every single year. And it was, there was so much anxiety too, because I had to tell my dad the day that I was going to plan the surprise attack, because it was the day that he needed to take off from work. So he could come to the principal's office and say, I'll take care of the disciplinary action at my home. He would tell me if the kid's ever smaller than you, you will get disciplinary action, but the kid's bigger than you, I'll take you home and nothing will happen. And that was major part of my growing up was, was getting in fights every year. The other part was in sixth grade, the school system had a dance. They took away the PE class because the Urban Cowboy just came out and transformed it from dodgeball, which I love, to teaching us the Cotton Eye Joe, then putting all this pressure on us to ask out a girl for this dance. None of this I wanted to do. My friends were all saying, you have to give her a goodnight kiss. And, and it was systemically pushed on you, on you to engage with the opposite sex in this way from such a young age. And by the time we got into eighth grade, all my friends were saying, nobody is a virgin in high school. And that really freaked me out. And I was like, that can't be true. But then the PE coach who was teaching health class said in eighth grade, he said to us, look, today we're going to be teaching a class on condoms because I know most of you are going to become sexually active in high school. And now I'm hearing my teacher say, this is what is expected of us. And so this is what I pursued. I was like, everyone's expecting me to become sexually active. You know, I lost my virginity the summer after eighth grade. I had high school career of being sexually active. And Just to understand what that does to someone, you know, even now when I think back to the, uh, the fighting, these were just young boys, but I think back about how I wanted for anyone who missed the fight to see the fight on his face so they would leave me alone the rest of the year. And so even when I knew they had enough, I would not let up. And at first when I was young, I felt so bad for them, but over time I had no empathy and I relished in it. 
And then all that other experience with the, the, the sexual activity, it, it just, it hardens your heart so much. You know, it distances us so much from God to be in such an environment, have such awful experiences that a Jew should not have exposure to. And I would say that when my daughter was born, it cracked that shell around my heart, but it took so much Torah learning, so much contemplation to finally chip all that away. And that is why when I, I'm, I'm there in this community and I see these young boys just knowing they won't ever have to have these experiences, truly just connecting, have their life around growing closer to Hashem and learning is toward all these values. It, it just makes my heart swell up. I, I literally almost get tears in my eyes thinking about how amazing it is. And at the same time, what I'm, I want to convey to you, if you're not living in a community, is to look in your children's eyes. You've had the experiences too, maybe not the same as me, but similar. We don't belong there. Your kids do not belong there. And I, I want to share some more experience with you, what's like to, to live in a community. And I think if you have children, you will see that knowing a compare and contrast, you will know what it can mean to them. And for those of you who were brought up in a from, from birth environment, I hope your appreciation for your childhood has grown as a result of hearing my types of experiences and, and you will have just a much greater sense of appreciation for it. So I have a guest I wanted to bring on. You've heard me bring on Rabbi Yolkoff Wolgenlinter before. I think you all sort of pick up on the fact that I have sort of a man crush on him. I've admitted it to him in the past. He should probably know that if I ever show up to shul and my hair is dyed blondish red, they should probably get a restraining order. One day we were in shul and I heard this man come up and give a lecture on the Torah Parsha. And I was so blown away. I turned Rabbi Yokoff Wolby. I was like, who is that man? He's like, that's Rabbi Yokoff Wolgenlinter's dad. I was like, oh, another Wolgenlinter. Well, I have another Wolgenlinter to bring on. Aaron Wolgenlinter, who hosts the Think Torah podcast. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, it's such an honor to be here. Welcome to the Shema podcast, the podcast for the perplexed where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. The reason I wanted you on and the reason I want to get everyone sort of plugged into what you're doing is what I love about this podcast that you started was... For one, you have these episodes on around the Shabbos table with your esteemed father and just hearing the types of conversations that you typically would have around a Shabbos table, I think gives so much light and clarity to what it's like experiencing Shabbos and having those types of conversations. And so I want all of you to subscribe to Think Torah Podcast, to listen to this. And again, for those of you who are outside of a community and you're sort of looking in with trepidation Listen to this. This is th- these are the types of conversations that make life meaningful. So, Aaron, I again thank you for coming on. If you could start with talking about what motivated you to start the podcast and what sort of your goal is and objective with it. Okay, awesome. Um, just in terms of framing, and I'm going to start from here. Maybe a, a bit of a, a backpedal, but in terms of what you said, that growing up in a Jewish community has this potential danger that you can get used to it and you can get, like you gave the example of the kids sitting around the Dafyomi class in the daily Talmud study and they could be they just grow up that this is the way this is the way it's done and they don't appreciate it. So to always be reminded to appreciate it is important. But I do feel that being able to grow up that way and being able to see that 
is important. And that definitely started started me on, on this journey because I want to bring that to both a learned audience and or a less learned audience because it's not about where you are intellectually and where you are with the Jewish sources. That's not, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that's where the quality of Judaism is. I think it's where the experience is and the appreciation of it. That started me on this journey to try to find my voice and try to find a place where I can bring that out, where I don't have to throw sources at it and get involved in, in all the laws and all the details, but rather the beauty of it. And that's started me podcasting um, a little bit a while ago. And it took me a while until my dad moved here to Israel down the road. And we really got to express this at, in a podcast called, like you mentioned, Around the Shabbos Table. And really, that, that's what it is. It's a reflection on the expressions that we've had growing up. So that was how we grew up. And I'll dive into that a little bit. We grew up in, my dad was an outreach rabbi of a large community in La Jolla, California for 33 years, which is longer than I've been around. So I grew up into this. But growing up that every Saturday after shul and after the services, we would come home to over 20, sometimes close to 50 people at at a meal. And it wasn't another sermon where my dad would just get up there and say, more of the Torah portion and more ideas of the Torah, but it was taking that sermon that he said in the morning and now experiencing it and now being able to experience with everyone around the table. And it was engaging and it was fun. And people would say over their stories of perhaps how they came to the shul and how they found this community and how they found maybe their story of how they found God and how they understood um, Judaism. And it was a very experiential event, the Shabbos meal. So it's very important for me, just the Shabbos meal, in and of itself is important to me uh, as I have children and I try to express that to them, that it should be a fun place, an enjoyable place, a place that we get to express our excitement for Torah and our excitement for God and for our connection with God. And that's really what we try to do at the table. So if I can capture some of that on a couple microphones, then that's, then I've, I've been successful. That's what we're trying to do there on that specific segment is just trying to bring over some of the beauty. Thank you. You know, it's so true that most people tell me that their first experience with Judaism as an adult was being invited to a Shabbos dinner. And it's just like, it just ignites something in you. I think that makes total sense that what you're doing is a way of remotely, you know, sort of bringing that to other Jews is fantastic. If you haven't experienced yet a Shabbat meal or a Shabbos meal, then it's definitely something that should be on your bucket list because Again, not for the the things we can force you to do and all the laws that we can, you know, that's not the point. The point is the beauty and you can experience and taste some of that beauty of of Shabbos. Give the audience idea of some of the conversations, the topical conversations that you and your father have had on that series. So we've done a a few interviews where we try to to frame it in that way as well. But some of my favorite, I'll get into the interviews in a moment. One of my favorite conversations, one we just had recently, and it was... The premise was, what can life teach us just from living? What are the lessons and things that you get from simply living? Not walking around with a book and not studying and applying, but just living. And my, my dad said he had an amazing, you know, sort of parable into life through being a pulpit rabbi. He always gave out lollipops um, after, the, after the services on Saturday. And he would give out lollipops to all the kids. And he understood, like, there's different types of children you know, what color lollipop they get and how they react when they don't get the color they want. And then when they go back to their parents and the father who comes and says, hey, I want, you know, my kid deserves this color lollipop. 
and the father who comes back later and perhaps even switches it out when the rabbi's not looking to another lollipop. And he had this whole elaborate system of the lollipop people. But when you look at it, there was really a truth to almost like a personality system, but a, but a truth to life that some people are accepted and they're humble enough to accept what they get. Some people, you know, try to be more on top of it and try to get what they need. And some people will even steal. And it's just interesting to see. But that was just from from that viewpoint of giving out lollipops. Um, he was able to do that. That was a fun conversation. I added some to that on around the Shabbos table. But what I think it does on a more like meta level is it allows people to realize that at your Shabbos table, and perhaps in a lot of conversations you have, it doesn't only have to be around on the Shabbos table, but a lot of conversations when we meet people and we just want to, you know, we want to connect to them. So we ask, you know, who, you know, where are you from? What do you do? You know, what sort of like, what kind of car do you drive? Maybe in Israel, how much do you make? Depends where you are, but that's what we automatically do. But if we can infuse those conversations with meaning and infuse those conversations with a with a, a higher purpose, maybe a level, but it doesn't have to be necessarily at like, you know, I sit down and just teach you a law the first time I meet you. Oh, here's a law from the Shulchan Aruch and here's, here's a law from, from the Code of Jewish Law. Like, uh, this is a good conversation, my man. It doesn't always have to be like that. There's a place in between where you can, you can infuse conversation with meaningful content. So if we can give that over a little bit, that's something that's very enjoyable to me. By having this conversation about lollipops, it's teaching people that when you sit down to have a conversation, you could, all you have to do is talk about lollipops. But if you up the notch, you just turn it, over, uh, turn it up a tiny bit, you too can create a meaningful conversation from that. Fantastic. I love it. Now, you also do a lot of interview, a lot of amazing people. Tell me a little bit about some of the people you've brought on, how you go about selecting your guests, and what some of the messaging is that they delivered to give people a little glimpse and taste and teaser, if you will, on what else they can find on your podcast. On our Around the Shabbos Table podcast, we we have some beautiful guests as well, where we try to bring that, again, these same messages of just talking. And we had, uh, happened to be my my uncle who came to us for Shabbos. So we got to record with him right, uh, I think that was right after on Saturday night. And we sat down for a cup of coffee and we got to record. And he had a, he had a fascinating story. You can obviously listen to the episode, but in, in a nutshell, he was a rabbi for from, from birth, uh, boys who made their way to Israel during more troubling times of their lives. And he was able to not only successfully turn them on to the meaning of Judaism and to the beauty of Judaism, but he also connected them to some of the Torah leaders in Israel. And he was able to bring them not just back to a stable place, but he actually propelled them way, way forward. And he was able to do that through connecting them. So he, he himself, my uncle, Rabbi Yeshua Lif, wrote a book where the, the premise of the book was him, what he learned from spending time with some of the, the biggest Torah leaders in Israel. And we wanted to understand from him, how did he make these leaders, how did he allow these children, these kids, to connect to these leaders? And he said over some beautiful stories about how these leaders were not as we view them. Sometimes we get this view of they're like the celebrities, you know, of Judaism. And they're, they're the untouchables. And you, you're you never going to get there. And where you know, these, these people, you know, it's one in a million. You're never going to understand how their minds work. And one story where one of the greatest leaders in Israel was brought a question by my uncle about a certain boy in his school. And the rabbi, the, the, the Torah leader, his name was Rabbi Shach. Rabbi Shach was unavailable and they had to speak to his second hand, you know, his like receptionist. And the next day, my uncle in the, in the school got a call back 
from, from Rav Shach, from the rabbi himself. He picked up the phone, he didn't go through his secretary. He picked up the phone himself and he said, didn't call himself his first name, he didn't call himself rabbi. He said, hey, this is Shach, can I speak to this kid? And what, what the point was is that these leaders are normal people. They pick up the phone like we do and they call like we do and they talk like we do. They want to help like we would. And that was an unbelievable way to connect to these Torah leaders, that they're, they're really just regular people. And that's what my uncle Rabbi Lif saying, that um, how, how he was able to teach his students this, that the Torah is normal, Judaism is normal, and our leaders are normal. Um, he's able to do that through the, these connections and through these conversations. So that was a wonderful conversation that we were able to have with him around the Shabbos table. And another series I run, which I find just from personal interest, I'm fascinated by people like yourself, Dan, that, that's why you were able to be on. Uh, I find this is sort of how I, um, how I vet them. People who have an important message, have a voice, have something they want to say, and are able to use sort of the modern, modern media to be able to get that out. So be it blogging or podcasting or video, uh, YouTube, that always, that, that brings me so much joy when someone gets, you know, watching somebody progress and get better and find their voice and find their community and find their audience to be able to express these ideas. So I like to interview people who I think are called uh, Torah game changers. People are using Torah and changing the game. So that's how I find them. My The way I vet them is usually if I'm interested in what they have to say and I can listen to more than, you know, five or ten of their podcasts. So then I usually uh, I'm dying to have them on. Um, on my pod. So that's also a very interesting uh, intersect and place to be where sometimes people learn, can learn Torah, but it's, it's very, um, you know, focused inwards and what they can do with it. And I blessed to have been able to speak to and be able to find constantly people who are able to let it, let it resonate inward and let it resonate with themselves and then fly out and let the, let what their wisdom and what they have to reach the masses and as many people as they can. I think this medium is so important right now because for someone who has never been like in a Jewish community or been around a quote unquote Orthodox Jew, it's a little intimidating. You know, you don't know who they are. You think they're going to judge you. You think they're going to be stern because they're always dressed in a certain way. And I think one of the things I try to do with my podcast and that you're doing with yours is people can sit from the privacy of their home and sort of listen in. It's like, you know, these are regular, cool, fun, just warm, sweet, but wise people. And I think it, it takes down a lot of the blockades that hopefully my goal is if someone's listening to me in whatever part of the world that they're listening to me in, that they'll approach that rabbi in their community and, and realize that, you know, it's not isolated to a few rabbis that Dan just happened to luckily meet. You know, I've heard a lot of people he brought on. I heard all the rabbis and other uh, learned Jewish people that Aaron Wolgenlinder has brought on. You know, this can't be an anomaly. This seems like more the norm, and it makes other Jews who are religious or Torah observant approachable. Right. And to speak to that, there's a, a little bit of another goal that I'm trying to also create a network. But what the network does of podcasts and podcasters is it allows different people to connect to different places. Where I know myself, I have you know, sort of an intellectual side where I very much enjoy the Jewish philosophy side of Judaism, but I also enjoy a more mystical and appreciate a more mystical, maybe Kabbalistic approach to Judaism as well. And I I feel that I can synthesize it too, but I need 
to be able to hear that from different people who excel in that area. So my my podcast network is trying to include all of that. It's to try to include the conversations that we have, and we're trying to include some some of the more mystical side of the Torah and some very philosophical and intellectual side of the Torah as well. And we try to give that, I don't know if it's going to be, you know, all the philosophical people will go here and all the mystical people will go here. I don't think we live in a generation like that anymore where everyone is so streamlined towards one thing. I think not just to break down the barriers to Judaism, you need so many different things. You know, you need the good chalent and the good food, but you also need the right type of Torah and the right type of ideas. I think even once someone is past that barrier and they're in they're you know they're, they're part of it um, and they're living in the proverbial you know sort of community even if it's online and they're consuming online I think that they you constantly need these different stimuluses throughout the day um, maybe throughout the week but to prepare for a Shabbos and to prepare for a um, for a weekly sedra and a weekly Torah portion you're going to need the different approaches towards that you're going to need the philosophical approach and the rational approach and the mystical approach. Because all that will help build what's so beautiful about uh, about the Torah and about what we do. Absolutely. And how do people find this network? So I've created uh, a website, and I, I could speak to the name as well, but I, I uh, created the website. It's called intentionaljew.com. Not international Jew. <laughs> Intentional Jew. Intentionaljew.com. And Intentional Jew has all the, the shows that we host on the network, um, and they're all right there. And... The name sort of speaks to what I'm trying to create. I'm trying to create a Judaism and an awareness to Judaism that's intentional. It's not just because I grew up this way or because this is how I was taught originally and therefore initially and therefore I'm going to continue doing it this way. But every step of your way has to be intentional. And every action you take and every mitzvah you do and every good deed has to be intentional. And when it's intentional, then it creates this beautiful mosaic and this beautiful uh, world that we live in. But uh, when it's just haphazard and a little bit of here and a little bit of there, and it's not creating anything big, and it's not intentionally being done, so then that's where uh, the problems arise. So that's what I'm trying to do, and that's why I thought the name fit well. So it's the Intentional Jew Podcast Network. I think that's so important. We are creatures of habit. We begin to do things on autopilot and lose meaning in what we're doing. What I've experienced since I moved into a community is... I've become very comfortable being in a constant state of uncomfortableness because I'm, I'm constantly like learning. Like I've not been going to shul to do shacharis with the minion since I moved here. It's been very infrequent just because of my work schedule. And I end up doing it in a more faster fashion, you know, here in my office before I start my work day. But I was like, okay, I need to start going on Sunday. So I go this morning and you know, I did not know what was going Once again, I'm like in a flux. I don't know how the service goes. And, but I have like young boys coming up to me, tell me, he's like, you were right here right now. Or I had a, a Kiva will be come up to me afterwards and say, you took your tefillin off the wrong way. I'll show you how to do it. You didn't do it in the right order. Take the hand off first before. And I was like, okay, fantastic. But it, it means I'm going in with my eyes open, constantly trying to figure things out. And it, it makes me, I, I don't want things to become rote. You know, I think that's important. I, I want to know what I'm doing. I don't want to stay in this state where I'm like, what's everyone doing next? But I, I want to keep, I don't want to get so comfortable that I'm doing things and I, I walk out of there and it just was on autopilot the whole time. And I think what you're doing, this whole thing of being an intentional Jew speaks to that. I think that's 
it's a fantastic idea. Right. We always have to, I, I, I myself, even though I grew up religious, I always try to keep myself in a, in a state of being uncomfortable, like what, like exactly what you're saying, but it, I'm just saying that it comes at so many different levels. Yeah. Um, always be uncomfortable. Don't get so comfortable with people around you. This is just what we do. Don't, whenever I fall into that trap, I, I push myself out of it. However, however I do, but I, I push myself out because when you're uncomfortable, then you could be introspective and then you could be, you can challenge the things around you. You can challenge yourself. That's a, an important, very important message for me. And I do love the fact that you have this sort of one-stop locale for accessing so many different people talking from so many different topics and areas. I think it's important because, you know, sometimes we get into a, even a, a rut with our studies, whatever we may be focused on, and we need to just sort of back off from it. You know, I found like learning halacha, which is what I, I to like focus on this, which is true. I got to learn how to navigate Shabbos and all these situations that may come up. It can get a little dry, but then I'll go back and like I did a, uh, an episode with Rabbi Cohen on the whole meaning going all the way back to Adam and eating from the, the tree of good and evil and the, and the confusion that created between what's good and bad and how that all leads into halacha. And why we're doing this, you know, every time you just step back and look at the big picture, it brings more meaning into things that seem on their own that can maybe seem dry. So I think that's fantastic that you're doing that to provide people this nice, like you said, stew. That's how I look at it. Like this big, wonderful, trollant pot of stew. And you need all those ingredients in there to make it beautiful and tasty. Right. And I think podcasts just, it just opened up um, this world for us because it's not just a place where I can now... Uh, communicate like all the halacha and all the laws. And it, it, it could be good for that, but I think it gives us a very experiential part of uh, and a conversational part of of Judaism and just really of, of anything. Even in you know, I learn most of the things even in business from podcasts because it gives you the real experience of people, not just the thoughts and not just the theory, but it's that theory actually being used and being used in conversation and stories of their life and it's. Uh, much more real. So in Judaism, it should be the same thing. And that's what I think is available. And I want to, I want more podcasters to be able to find that voice and find that place where they can communicate that experience. Fantastic. Where, where do you see the, the future of all this going? What are some, some of your plans for your podcast? Anything you want to mention there? I have new plans every day. Uh, I, I really, my main goal here is in terms of, you know, short-term growth, I always want to find more podcasters who are um, doing a good job at using the medium and using the platform, um, but also have quality content. So I constantly am finding them uh, online and just from various you know, Facebook groups or just searching any Jewish. I go through like um, Jewish keywords on Spotify and Apple Podcasts where I just throw them out there. So today I, I was like, Shema, there must be other ones that are called Shema. So I put in Shema and I, and I saw what came up there and then I'll find and I'll listen and I'll always see um, who's doing something or Jewish education. I'll type in or I'll type in Torah. I'll type in mitzvah. I'll type in the different permutations of the words as well, just to keep on finding uh, new podcasts and new names of people who are doing, who are doing just this. Um, so I'm always looking for podcasters to help grow um, the the mission of the network itself, and in terms of my own podcast, I'm just always trying to get better. It's a, uh, I think it's a skill. For a while, I thought it was just a guy with a microphone, but I'm sure you can attest this as well. 
So the point is that it's a skill and it's hard. And to be able to run conversations and to actually get somewhere, it's easy. It's easier to create entertainment, but it's harder to make that entertainment meaningful. And when I have that value with all of the work that I do, so that's it's an extra level of challenge, and I and I take it on because I think it's I think it's awesome. I think it's beautiful and important. So that's like in terms of my own goals, and in terms of the network goals, I really want to I want to grow into something that we can we can help change the content and the way people consume as we as we move forward and as they accept the technology more and more i want to make the content available to them so as they get there so then the content's already there so that this way when they do their own searches or anybody does searches for any jewish word we have a podcast for that and we have an episode that talks about that already and it wasn't from yesterday we've been doing this for years you know and it's already up and it's already there and the just to flood the search engine with with Torah ideas—that's a—that's uh, a goal of mine. Fantastic. Are you going to have like a Netflix algorithm that says since you liked this episode, you might like this one? If I have someone to sponsor that, I have someone to uh, to invest in that. Then yeah, I would go for that. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting. I, I joke. I don't think I would because um, what Netflix and YouTube does in essence is they control the content. And I'm, I, I always speak about this. I don't want to control the content. Um, and as much as I say that the, there's a certain level of content that I do want to, to, to create or a certain value that I want to give over, but I don't want it to be a race to the top where people are just creating, you know, fall into that trap of creating content that's entertaining, that people like, because I think that we can lift what people like when you create a, con- a, a podcast like this, where every episode of, of the Shema podcast is honestly meaningful. Um, you've now, anybody who spends that 45 minutes, you've, you've taken them away from watching another episode of, you know, breaking bad or whatever <laughs> they're reviewing, you know, and you've taken them and put them into something meaningful. So I think that I, I don't want to necessarily control and say, Oh, but it has to be done this way. And you have to have this kind of, then it has to be this length. You do what goes well for you. Um, obviously with a certain value of, of what the kind of content is. So algorithms are funny to me because I feel like those, I always think about like creating a, you know, maybe a Jewish podcast, uh, a YouTube kind of thing where we have some sort of system where people get to the top, but I, I feel that would always control the content too much. And then, and then people wouldn't be creating what they believe is right, but rather what's going to make them to the top. And that that's like a scary world for me to be in, in terms of teaching genuine Torah. No, I, I, I agree with that. It would be good to have, for those who are new to Torah, some search functionality that did not rely on words like Musar. Right. Because I'm, I'm saying things with like people who know the keywords, but you're bringing up a great point. What if they don't know the keywords? So now you can open them up to that as well, right? Yeah. Like, th- like things like, I'm struggling with losing my temper. That would lead to them going to a Musar podcast on those things. I think that would be uh, an amazing idea. If anyone's listening and wants the amazing uh, mitzvah of helping to uh, get something like that started, they, they know where to find us. Right, totally. And if anybody, if anybody listening wants to help, wants to be found, you know, and wants uh, wants help to start a podcast and to find their voice, it's something I'm very passionate about, and I would uh, I would love to help as well. Fantastic. Anything else you would like to uh, share with our listening audience, Aaron? I got nothing new, but I, I do think it's just to, to review that idea is that uh, Judaism is beautiful and we sing, I like to sing with my children. They put uh, some words to a traditional, 
I think it's even a, of Chabad Hasidus uh, song, and the words are, it's Yiddish, so it's a little hard one, but it's, it's Gishmak to be a Jew. And Gishmak means, there's really no translation for it, but the way I would translate it is it's wonderful, it's beautiful, it's amazing. It's hard to put, to limit it into one word. But that's what I sing to my children. Um, that's what I sing with them as they're dancing on top of their, you know, screaming it on top of their lungs and standing on the tables. And because it is, it's, it's wonderful. It's a beautiful place to be. And it adds meaning and just a beautiful connection to Hashem is what we can get from it. So it is Gishmak. If you would learn one Yiddish word today, then Gishmak is definitely the word. Uh, it's Gishmak to be a Jew. And that's my message that it's a, it's a beautiful thing we do. That's awesome. You know, I started off this episode talking about how people should sort of to get them a look of what's like, you know, raising a family in a community. And that was one of the first things was Gishmak to be, it's Gishmak to be a Yid on Semchus Torah, where you had all these kids just ecstatic dancing around with the, the Torah scroll, yelling at the top of their lungs, I think for like a 24 hours straight. And, and they're right. That's all I was, I was just blown away. It's like, you're right. It is Gishmak to be a Yid. <laughs> so thank you so much, Aaron Wolligan Lynch. I appreciate it. Again, check out his podcast, Think Torah. You can find all, right, you can find all the podcasts that I do on Intentional Jew, just like that, intentionaljew.com. There's also a beautiful, if I could just plug one thing, my dad has a beautiful Pirkei Avot, which is like the, I would call it the mini, the handy book of Jewish wisdom, you know, everything you would, everything one would need. And it's a beautiful class that he gives. Uh, we've put up more than, more than half of all of the, uh, of all the episodes so far. So it's an ongoing class. You can get involved. That's a beautiful class. It's called Pirkei Avos with Rabbi Jeff. That's a beautiful one. And then we have a, a few other really just wonderful creators and wonderful talent um, on the network. So please go check that out, intentionaljew.com. All right. Thank you, Aaron Wolgenlenter. Another Wolgenlenter that I love. It's a joy to have you on. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day from Israel to do so. Pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.